the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Court cases affirming the rights of LGBTQ Americans continue to reflect changing understanding and attitudes within our country. But there are other cases that reflect resistance, and that is true also of faith communities, which traditionally serve as a place of refuge and also comfort for people undergoing difficult life experiences. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we open a conversation with representatives of the LGBTQ community and various faith traditions. So we thank you all for joining us in this program, and I thank particularly our guests who are going to give us a much greater depth of understanding in their perspectives. Uh, so first, I'd like to introduce Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, a scholar in residence at the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue in New York City. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Imam Jamal Rahman, who's a, uh, a frequent visitor on this program, uh, especially in uh, particular with his involvement with the Interfaith Amigos. Jamal, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Father David Strong of the Spirit of Christ Catholic Community in Tacoma. David, thank you for joining us in this conversation. Thank you. And would also like to welcome pastors Joanne Anquist and Kari Lipke, both of Gethsemane Lutheran Church in Seattle. Thank you both for joining us as well today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let me begin. Uh, and uh, Mike, I might address this question to you first. Uh, perhaps share your personal experiences that led you to and shaped your involvement with the LGBT community, either as a part of the community or working with them, and also how it shaped your philosophy, your approach to faith leadership. Thank you so much uh, for the thoughtful question. Uh, I, like many who get involved in allyship and advocacy at this level, have a personal experience. I think in general, it's easy to um, kind of hate somebody that you've never met or uh, to be afraid of that which you've never experienced. As a proof text, uh, the brothers, the verse tells us, saw Joseph from afar and sought to do harm to him. Um, and so it's on some level easier to dehumanize uh, folks when you don't know them. So for me, on the opposite end of the spectrum, it was only when somebody uh, in my family said to me, uh, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, um, that I was forced to try to uh, understand a little bit better about where gender lies. Um, and from a theological perspective, if we want people to be the most authentic and genuine versions of themselves in relationship to God, we need to create a safe space for people uh, to acknowledge those identities and experiences. So for me, it was about five years ago, six years ago, I was a rabbi at Columbia University, and I was the, the rabbi of the old Broadway synagogue in Harlem, where at the same time, uh, a student and a congregant had come to me uh, and let them know that they had already transitioned um, and wanted to explore some of the gender-based spiritual practice within Judaism. Um, and that's really when, I think for the first time, um, I was in a position where I had to just acknowledge that I, I just had no idea. and and really even couldn't gain any sort of traction. And it wasn't until I realized that my inability to experience or understand gender beyond my own body is actually just what makes me cis and not trans. Um, and so that limitation itself, that acknowledgement of the limitation was for me the most generative. Jamal, I might ask you the same question next. Uh, 
Thank you, Jeff. You know, I'm an average Muslim. Uh, I'm possibly, a, I used to be a passive, gentle, homophobic person. Uh, this is when my hair was a little bit more black. Uh, I would say uh, there's several factors which, uh, which made me change and uh, made me more aware of the anguish of others. Uh, I began to counsel some Muslim uh, gays and lesbians. And initially I was very interested in just rewiring them to put them on the straight path as the Muslim would say. Uh, I never did quite listen. But finally, when I did listen, I began to really connect with their deep, profound anguish. Yeah, their parents wanted to commit suicide. Uh, you know, they had all these different thoughts. And to me, listening is critical uh, in, in my work. And how do I define listening? I, I love the words of Rumi that, you know, metaphorically, you put your head on the person's chest and just sink into the answer. So listening, to the anguish and pain of my uh, gay and lesbian friends made me more aware, that's number one. Number two, I began to educate myself. In the Quran, the most used word is Allah. The second most used word is ilm, which means knowledge. And Islam really encourages you, in theory, to really pursue knowledge. So I began to learn more. Uh, and then I began to connect. See, in, in the Quran it says, God has created diversity, so you might get to know the other on a human level. Uh, you know, Muslims don't practice it, non-Muslims don't practice it. I decided to practice it. And with that learning and that connecting with the other, I think I began to move what the uh, Muslim spiritual teachers say, you begin to move from a knowledge of the tongue to a knowledge of the heart. And once I connected, I learned and I listened, it was difficult for me to demonize. So I became transformed. I became more aware. That's my story. So Joanne or Kari, I might ask you if you would share your story with us next. So I was raised in a, in a Christian tradition in the Lutheran congregation uh, during a time when uh, there was some pretty significant um, distancing of the experiences of gays and lesbians uh, in our church and a, a dismissal uh, a dismissing of, of our identities and our, ourselves as participants. And uh, for quite a long time, until 2009, it was prohibited for uh, gay or lesbian uh, persons who were uh, in seminary or becoming pastors to be in relationships. Um, so I, I lived through this time of of the church coming to a new awareness about uh, the gifts of persons who identified as queer. And um, for my own self, that, that meant uh, limits for a long time in my own ministry. I've been a pastor for 31 years now. Um, and only the last uh, dozen or so has it been possible for me to be in relationship and uh, to be connected. And, and so I think for me, one of the pieces is, is the opposite direction of what uh, Rabbi Mike and uh, Imam Jamal were saying that for me, it's, it came out of my own identity, my experience and my saying, how do I reconcile my understanding of a loving God who accepts and, uh, and embraces and calls beloved each person and then to live out of that in an expression of 
of both my personal faith and my and my work as a pastor in the church. And by the time um, things had shifted in and the time that Kari was called into ministry, uh, things were beginning to change a little for her. And I think it's an interesting perspective that we each have uh, on this and invite her to share a little if she'd like. Kari? When I was when I was very young, there was nobody. I grew up in a very small town. It was a very small church, and also in the Lutheran Christian tradition, I didn't have any. I didn't have any role models to know what this difference was inside of me in terms of my own identity, and as I grew up and began to experience the larger world and had some language for my own sense of identity. Um, I began to understand how important it is for there to be leaders who look and sound and have the same experiences that uh, other queer people do. And so I actually, part of a big part of my call is actually related to, to my call to being a pastoral minister is related to being queer myself. I wanted to be in a position where I could be there for children and young people who were discerning their own identities and I wanted them to see and know somebody who was, you know, similar to them in terms of identity. And so it's a, it's a part of my call. And I was coming of age and at the same time that the church was uh, discerning what it was going to do around opening things up for people in relationships or not. And um, I put off going to divinity school uh, until I was pretty sure that they were going to <laughs> open things up because I wanted to be able to be in relationship with somebody else. And I wanted the church to be able to, to bless that and celebrate that and be on board with that before I uh, made the commitment to be a pastor. So uh, that's just a little bit of my story um, to share with all of you. And David, could you share with us a bit of your experience and perspective? Sure. Uh, I'm an openly gay man. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Southern Illinois called Carroll, Illinois. My great-grandmother always said it had the best of the North and the worst of the South. So I grew up in a Baptist household and somewhere along the line, I was drawn to the Catholic Church uh, and uh, joined the Catholic Church when I was in eighth grade. Sexuality didn't really seem to be an issue. Uh, then I went off to college and um, realized, okay, there are other people like me. And then the AIDS crisis came around 1983 for me. And I returned to the seminary because I thought, well, I can be celibate. I can follow the church's teachings and I will be okay. And my family will accept me. And then one night in seminary at St. John Vianney, Seminary uh, at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, where the current archbishop was an upperclassman of mine. Uh, I, priest, proclaimed the gospel. And in that scripture, it said, You should know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And I remember I couldn't hear anything else the rest of the Mass. And I said, mm, I had a reaction. My friend's like, What's going on? What's going on? It's like, Nothing. And I knew at that moment, despite HIV, despite all the things were happening around us, despite this sort of it's a very strong anti-gay element in the Roman Catholic Church, I could no longer live in the closet. 
it was killing me. And so I came out and which I was asked to leave uh, at the end of the semester. And then I ended up here on the Northwest and uh, became involved with a woman named the late Reverend Gwen Hall, who started the first African-American affirming church. And uh, I would go there from time to time. And eventually I got ordained in what's called the independent Catholic movement because they welcomed everyone. And so I feel like my ministry has been crossing religious boundaries and denominations to let people know that the truth shall make you free. And that's been the essence of my ministry, helping people find that freedom. As I listen to each of your stories, it reminds me of a study I think that was uh, published that showed a sizable number of LGBTQ individuals are leaving their religious traditions, either of their upbringing or ones that they've been affiliated with, but still seek to practice their faith. I guess, what has been your experience with that? And what is your response to that? Uh, how would you have us respond? And whoever wants to uh, respond to that first, please go ahead. I'll go ahead and take a take a crack at it. I think that the that LGBTQ plus people aren't that different from other folks in terms of leaving, there are a lot more people leaving their faith traditions just generally. We're known as the nun zone here in the Pacific Northwest and people are, are spiritual but not religious. Um, and that's, that's a pretty common thing. But I've had many conversations with young LGBTQ plus people saying there wasn't space and there still isn't space for me in my congregation. And because of that, I need to leave. I need to find a place where I can practice my spirituality, where I'm accepted and I don't have to, I don't have to have this be a barrier, but I can to community and to, to, to the truth and the truth setting me free um, that David just talked about. So I think, you know, in our, in our tradition, there's a program called Reconciling in Christ, and it's a designation a congregation can take on to let people know that they're, that they're overtly welcoming. It's not just a we welcome everybody, it's a we welcome people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. And we've done our work to become a positive celebrating presence in the lives of people of all of all sexual orientations and gender identities. And that, that clues people in right away that, they, that they're welcome for who they are and they don't, have to, um, they don't have to suss it out themselves, whether this is a community that's going to be uh, on their side in terms of their identity. Um, so yeah, I've, I've had a lot of conversations as a result of being an RIC church and, and being an out uh, married queer person myself, uh, signaling safety to folks. And I think what they want is, is space to really be themselves and not have to worry about uh, the, the barrier, the boundary that people put up that tries to keep them separate from God and separate from the community. Yeah, within the Orthodox world right now, this is certainly the best of times. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the ideal is that people shouldn't ever feel like they need to choose between a religious identity and a queer, gender queer identity. And I think young people in particular don't want to choose. And so uh, if we think about like the kind of the spectrum of like an intolerable deviancy, which is I think how this was perceived within mainstream Orthodoxy and ultra-Orthodoxy and more broadly in the world, 
not that long ago, um, I would say, you know, before we get to celebration and even acceptance, there's, uh, I think, a place called like, in, like tolerable deviancies, meaning that like, I'm not okay with this, but I'd rather you be here than leave. Uh, and as offensive as that is, and it's just a step along uh, the spectrum of civilization, um, I think that is where a lot of the ultra-Orthodox world is right now, which is a huge shift from being intolerable. Um, and so because we think a lot about these things in terms of relationship building and proximity, once uh, a community is willing to acknowledge the reality of the experience and create space for people to stay, I think the next kind of steps happen very, very quickly, which is what we have seen you know, in the last 40 or 50 years uh, in America and in other kind of movements within uh, the Jewish tradition. And I would say uh, there are many uh, Roman Catholics who have chosen to stay in the church and they have found parishes that are welcoming for them. And there are many who have not. And so for some of us, we've created these independent Catholic communities, but we keep our sacramental life uh, that's so important to us and build community. And so in, there's one in Olympia, Spokane, but all around the country are these inclusive independent small communities that are saying we are going to keep our faith uh, with that and we're going to pray for those who have decided they want to fight the battle within the institution but some of us have had to come out uh, literally come out of the institution to come out for our lives in the islamic community and this is actually in north america uh, there has been a dramatic shift in the attitude towards the lgbtq community uh, in the last 10 years uh, the most recent Pew Research tells us that the majority of Muslims are actually in favor of uh, same-sex marriage, which is remarkable, actually, uh, that the change is happening in America. So that's one point. The second point is, uh, you know, when, uh, when we interpret revelations, when we say that, for example, as a Muslim, if I say the Quran says this, an important question is, who says the Quran says this? <laughs> Usually it's, uh, it's, it's a man, uh, you know, and sometimes it's in medieval interpretations. Uh, women are beginning to interpret uh, the Quran. Uh, LGBTQ community is now beginning to interpret the Quran and their interpretation is quite different of the same verse. And it's wonderful explanation, makes total sense. So I, I go back to uh, the fact that, you know, when we say religion is saying this against this group or that group, this is not religion speaking. This is our conditioned, biased ego speaking. I love the words of Rumi about interp interpreting a verse. He says, look at this, or ponder on this. A bee and a wasp, they drink from the same flower, but one produces nectar, other one produces a sting. So it depends on your intention and your level of consciousness. That seems like a good direction to move next. We do hear references from people on various perspectives in terms of scriptures supporting their viewpoint as either justification for marginalization or and discrimination or uh, acceptance and integration. How do each of you respond to that when those sorts of questions are posed to you or those sorts of justifications? I'll say from my experience, uh, the, the clobber verses I've heard again and again and again. And I often reflect back on that Paul said to the folks at the time, 
slaves obey your masters. And in America, uh, slave masters use that to justify slavery. And somewhere through revelation and reflection, my people said, wait a minute, uh-uh, Jesus is not about that. And so when I look at scripture and I see those voices, verses used against us, I also remind my people that in the Bible and the Hebrew scripture said that God knew us in our mother's womb. And we knew God is all knowing and all seeing, so God's not surprised by us. And so it's about reinterpreting and, and reflecting that we serve a God who is about our liberation. Uh, and, and I have learned from my mother, don't argue with people about scripture <laughs> uh, to justify your existence. I'm happy uh, also to add, um, in the Hebrew tradition, the word uh, that's deployed both around gender identity in terms of a prohibition of cross-dressing and also around sexual orientation uh, is the word toeva, which is, you know, often translated as an abomination. Within the religious, within the Jewish tradition, um, a more accurate definition or, uh, or translation is like a misrepresentation of self. It's the same word that's used uh, in the biblical prohibition of just owning uh, unfair weights and measures. If a person just has them in their possession, it's the same as a biblical prohibition, the same word is used. Uh, and so I've written a lot about this. Uh, there's an article, um, homophobia is the true, the real abomination. But basically, uh, it's always framed with three people, that a man shouldn't be with another man, the way he is with a woman, and so too in the Code of Jewish Law for women, uh, it says that husbands should warn their wives. And um, I think that what it speaks to me in, in our times is that um, the irony that, that, that people who are queer are often forced into heteronormative spaces, which is really a fulfillment of the biblical prohibition, that if a person uh, is not able to tell their partner you know, who they are in terms of their identity and who they're attracted to, uh, so invariably a third person is gonna be involved. And so the prohibition is really a misrepresentation of self. Uh, if you're queer, don't marry straight. Uh, if you're, um, you know, not that we have to worry about if you're straight, married, and queer, but uh, if a person uh, is male, then it's important to present uh, if it's safe to do so as one's gender identity, as opposed to necessarily the way in which they were, um, they were assigned. And that's really what the, the verse comes to prohibit: that uh, if a person should not misrepresent themselves in order to gain access uh, to gender spaces with licentious and nefarious. Uh, intentions. It's, it's probably most analogous to dressing up as a doctor to get access to patients. We can understand why that's a toeva. Uh, that's a misrepresentation of self. There's nothing wrong in dressing up like a doctor. There's nothing wrong in being a doctor. The problem is that you're not, uh, you know, trying to gain access to intimate spaces as a misrepresentation of self. Kari or Juan? Yeah, I find that so helpful. Such an such an important distinction in in the intention and uh, especially the identity. I was I was thinking about. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm particularly challenged anymore to have the conversations, both because they don't come as often and uh, I don't find them as unnerving uh, about the so-called clobber texts. Um, but, but what I do find pastorally really challenging is that accompaniment that we're, we're called to do in ministry with persons who are uh, deeply engaged in a process of, of figuring out who they are, uh, either because they have been forced into uh, a sort of bearded, as we could say, bearded relationships, um, covering themselves in ways that, that they seek protection from, from the attacks of other communities, but, but also just um, those who are along a continuum of time, you know, as 
as ones who maybe didn't even feel like they were uh, choosing to go against themselves, but really were trying to move themselves into a different space. And I think uh, what I love about the current climate as things are opening up more is that it's much less common for me to have those hard conversations with someone who is um, who really identifies, self-identifies as queer, but is, has been in relationship and is trying to figure out how to name who they are uh, as it's being revealed. I think there's a greater awareness uh, in the younger generation of, of exploration and self-identity that, that is affirmed. So, so we're not always going backwards trying to refit, but, but people are able to come up and say, this is who I'm understanding myself to be. And, and, and increasingly with a fluidity that I think uh, was not a part of my youth. You know, there was, there was a pretty clear, if not a binary, at the very least, uh, a couple of binaries in between. And now a greater fluidity in saying, how do we as members of a faith community accompany people in their discernment about who they are and where they, where they fit in that continuum? If you saw my eyes widen a bit, it's because I was looking at the clock and incredulous that we've uh, spent as much time on this conversation as we have, which has just been wonderful. Uh, as you viewers out there might well suspect, there is much more to be covered and we are going to do so. All of our guests have graciously agreed to stay with us. So we thank them for joining us on this episode of Challenge 2.0 and hope you will join us again next week when they will again be with us and we'll delve further into some of these same topics. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Puccia. Ian Olson is the production assistant.